0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio Presentation of Skylark Three by E. E. Doc Smith. Volume nine, chapter eleven, Into a Sun. As Roval and Seaton approached the physics laboratory at the beginning of the period of labor, another small airboat occupied by one man drew up beside them and followed them to the ground. The stranger, another white bearded ancient, greeted Roval cordially, and was introduced to Seton as kaslor the first of Mechanism. Truly, this is a high point in the course of Norlaminium science, my young friend, kaslor acknowledged the introduction smilingly. You have enabled us to put into practice many things which our ancestors studied in theory for many a wearisome cycle of time. Turning to Roval, he went on. I understand you require a particularly precise directional mechanism. I know well it must indeed be one of exceeding precision and delicacy, for the controls you yourself have built are able to hold any point, however moving, within the limits of our immediate solar system. We require controls a million times as delicate as any I have constructed, said Roval. Therefore, I have called upon your surpassing skill. It is senseless for me to attempt a task in which I would be doomed to failure. We intend to send out a fifth-order projection, something none of our ancestors ever dreamed of, which, with its inconceivable velocity of propagation, will enable us to explore any region in the galaxy as quickly as we now visit our closest sister planet. Knowing the dimensions of this, our galaxy, you can readily understand the exact degree of precision required to hold upon a point at its outermost edge. Truly, a problem worthy of any man's brain, Kazler replied after a moment's thought. Those small circles! He pointed to the forty-foot hour and declination circles, which Seton had thought the ultimate and precise measurement of angular magnitudes are, of course, useless. I shall have to construct large and accurate circles, and in order to produce the slow and vast motions of the required nature, without creep, slip, play, or backlash, I shall require a pure talk, capable of being increased by infinitesimal increments. Pure talk, I tell you! He thought deeply for a time, and then went on. No gear train or chain mechanism can be of sufficient tightness, since in any mechanism there is some freedom of motion, however slight, and for this purpose the director must have no freedom of motion whatever. We must have pure torque, and the only possible force answering our requirements is the 467th band of the Fourth Order. I shall therefore be compelled to develop that band, THE DIRECTOR MUST, OF COURSE, HAVE A FULL EQUATORIAL MOUNTING, WITH CIRCLES SOME 250 FEET IN DIAMETER. MUST YOUR PROJECTOR TOO BE LONGER THAN THAT FOR CORRECT DESIGN? THAT LENGTH WILL BE AMPLE. THE MOUNTING MUST BE CAPABLE OF ROTATING THROUGH THE FULL CIRCLE OF arc IN EITHER PLANE, AND MUST BE DRIVEN IN PRECISELY THE MOTION REQUIRED TO NEUTRALIZE THE MOTION OF OUR PLANET, WHICH, AS YOU KNOW, IS SOMEWHAT IRREGULAR. "'Additional fast and slow motions must, of course, be provided "'to rotate the mechanism upon each graduated cylinder "'at the will of the operator. "'It is my idea to make the outer supporting tube quite large "'so that you will have full freedom with your projector tube proper. "'Seems to me that dimensions X37, B42, J867 "'would perhaps be as good as any.' "'Perfectly satisfactory.' you have the apparatus well in mind these things will consume some time how soon will you require this mechanism asked kaslor we have much to do yet two periods of labor let us say or if you require them three it is well two periods will be ample time i was afraid you might need it today and the work cannot be accomplished in one period of labor the mounting will, of course, be prepared in the area of experiment. Farewell. You're not going to build the final projector here, then? Seaton asked as Kessler's flyer disappeared. We shall build it here, then transport it to the area where its dirigible housing will be ready to receive it. All mechanisms of that type are set up there. Not only is the location convenient to all interested, but there are also to be found all necessary tools, equipment, and material. Also, and not least important for such a long range work as we contemplate, the entire area of experiment is anchored immovably to the solid crust of the planet, so that there cannot be even the slightest vibration to affect the direction of our beams of force, which must of course be very long." He closed the master switches of his power plants and the two resumed work where they had left off. The control panel was soon finished. Roval then plated an immense cylinder of copper and placed it in the power plant. He next set up an entirely new system of refractory relief points and installed additional ground rods, sealed through the floor and extending deep into the ground below, explaining as he worked. You see, son, we must lose one one one-thousandth of one percent of our total energy and provision must be made for its dissipation in order to avoid destruction of the laboratory. These air gap resistances are the simplest means of disposing of the wasted power. Yeah, I get that, but say, how about disposing of it when we get the thing in a ship in space? We picked up pretty heavy charges in the Skylark. So heavy, in fact, I had to hold up several times in the ionized layer of an atmosphere while they faded and this outfit will burn up tons of copper, where the old ones only used ounces. In the projected space vessel, we shall install converters to utilize all the energy, so there will be no loss whatsoever. Since such converters must be designed and built especially for each installation, and since they require a high degree of precision, it is not worthwhile to construct them for a purely temporary mechanism, such as this one. The walls of the laboratory were opened, ventilating blowers were built, and refrigerating coils were set up everywhere, even in the tubular structure and behind the visiplates. After ensuring themselves that everything combustible had been removed, the two scientists put on under their helmets goggles whose protective lenses could be built up to any desired thickness. Roval then threw a switch, and a hemisphere of flaming golden ratings surrounded the laboratory, and extended for miles upon all sides. "'I get most of the stuff you pulled so far. "'But what's with the light?' asked Seaton. "'As a warning, this entire area will be filled with dangerous frequencies. "'That light is a warning for all uninsulated persons "'to give our theater of operations a wide berth.'" "'Okay, what's next?' All that remains to be done is to take our lens material and go, replied Roval, as he took from a cupboard the largest faden that Sidon had ever seen. Oh, that's what you're going to use. You know, I've been wondering about that stuff. I took one back with me to Earth to experiment on it. I gave it everything I could think of and couldn't touch it. I couldn't even make it change its temperature. What is that stuff anyway? It is not matter at all. In the ordinary sense of the word, it is almost pure crystallized energy. You have, of course, noticed that it looks transparent. But it is not. You cannot see into its substance a millionth of a micron, the illusion of transparency being purely a surface phenomenon and peculiar to this one form of substance. I have told you that the ether is a fourth-order substance. This also is a fourth-order substance but it is crystalline, whereas the ether is probably fluid and amorphous. You might call this phaedon, crystallized ether, without being very far from wrong. If that was true, it should weigh tons, and it's hardly heavier than air, or wait a minute. Gravitation is a fourth-order phenomenon too, so it might not weigh anything at all, but it would have terrific mass, or would it, not having any protons? Crystallized ether would displace fluid ether, so it might... Okay, I give up. This is too much for me, said Seaton. Its theory is abstruse, and I cannot explain it to you any more fully than I have, until after we have given you a knowledge of the Fourth and Fifth Orders. Pure Fourth Order material would be without weight and without mass, but these crystals, as they are found are not absolutely pure. In crystallizing from magma, they entrap sufficient number of particles of the higher order to give them the characteristics which you have observed. The impurities, however, are not sufficient in quantity to offer a point of attack to any ordinary reagent. How could such a material possibly be formed? It could be formed only in some such gigantic cosmic body as this, our green system, formed incalculable ages ago, when all the mass comprising it existed as one colossal Sun. Picture for yourself the condition in the center of that Sun. It has attained the theoretical maximum of temperature, some 70 million of your centigrade degrees. The electrons are stripped from the protons until the entire central core is one solid ball of neutronium and can be compressed no more without the destruction of the protons themselves still the pressure increases the temperature already at the theoretical maximum can no longer increase what happens disruption precisely and just at the instant of disruption during the very instant of generation of the frightful forces that are to hurl suns and planets and satellites millions of miles out into space in that instant of time as a result Of these unimaginable temperatures and pressures, the Phaeton comes into being. It can be formed only by the absolute maximum of temperature and at a pressure which can only exist momentarily, even in the largest conceivable masses. How can you make a lens out of that then? It must be impossible to work with it in any way. It cannot be worked in any ordinary way. But we shall take this crystal into the depths of that white dwarf star into a region where there are pressures and temperatures only less than those giving it birth. There we shall play forces upon it which, under those conditions, we will be able to work it quite readily. Wow. I want to see that. Let's go. They seated themselves at the panels and Roval began to manipulate keys, levers, and dials. Instantly a complex structure of visible force Rods, beams, and flat areas of flaming scarlet energy appeared at the end of the tubular, telescope-like network. "'Why red?' asked Seaton. "'Merely to render them visible. One cannot work well with invisible tools. Hence I have imposed a colored light frequency upon the invisible frequency of the forces. We will have an assortment of colors, if you prefer.' And as he spoke, each ray assumed a different color, so that the end of the projector was almost lost beneath a riot of color. The structure of force, which Seaton knew was the secondary projector, swung around as if sentient, and a lurid green ray extended itself, picked up the faden and lengthened out, hurling the jewel a thousand yards out through the open side of the laboratory. Roval moved more controls, and the structure righted itself again, swinging back into perfect alignment with the tube and carrying the faden upon its extremity a thousand yards beyond the roof of the laboratory. We are now ready to start our projection. Be sure your suit and goggles are perfectly tight. We must see what we are doing, so the light rays must be heterodyned upon our carrier wave. Therefore the laboratory and all its neighborhood will be flooded with dangerous frequencies from the sun we are to visit, as well as those from your own generators. Okay, chief, all tight here. You say it's ten light-years to that star? How long is it going to take us to get there? About ten minutes. We could travel that far in less than ten seconds, but for the fact we must take the phaedon with us. Slight as is its mass, it will require much energy for its acceleration. Our projections, of course, have no mass, and will require only the energy of propagation. Roval flicked a finger. A massive pair of plunger switches... Shot into their sockets, and Seaton seated at his board, staring into his visiplate, was astounded to find that he apparently possessed a dual personality. He knew that he was seated motionless in the operator's chair at the base of the rigidly anchored primary projector, and by taking his eyes away from the visiplate before him, he could see that nothing in the laboratory had changed except that the pyrotechnic display from the power bar was of unusual intensity. Yet, looking into the visiplate, he was out in space, in person, hurtling through space at a pace beside which the best effort of the Skylark seemed the merest crawl. Swinging his controls to look backwards, he gasped as he saw, so stupendous was their velocity, that the green system was only barely discernible as a faint green star. Again looking forward, it seemed as though a fierce white star had separated from the immovable firmament and was now so close to the structure of force in which he was riding that it was already showing a disc perceptible to the unaided eye. A few moments more and the violet-white splendor became so intense that the watchers began to build up layer by layer the protective goggles before their eyes. As they approached still closer, falling with their unthinkable velocity into the incandescent inferno, a sight was revealed to their eyes such as man had never before been privileged to gaze upon. They were falling into a white dwarf star and could see everything visible during such an unheard of journey and would live to remember what they had seen. They saw the magnificent spectacle of solar prominences shooting hundreds of thousands of miles into space, and directly in their path they saw an immense sunspot, a combined volcanic eruption and Cyclonic storm in a gaseous liquid medium of blinding incandescence. Hadn't we better dodge that spot, Ace? Mightn't it be generating interfering fourth order frequencies? cried seaton. It is undoubtedly generating fourth order rays, but nothing can interfere with us since we are controlling every component of our beam from Nolamin. seaton gripped his handrail violently and involuntarily drew himself together into the smallest possible compass, as, with their awful speed unchecked, they plunged through that flaming incandescent photosphere, and on, straight down, into the unexplored, unimaginable interior of that frightful, searing orb. Through the protective goggles, now a full four inches of that peculiar golden shielding material, Seaton could see the structure of force in which he was, they could also see the phaeton in outline as transparent diamonds are visible in equally transparent water. Their apparent motion slowed rapidly and the material about them thickened and became more and more opaque. The phaeton drew back toward them until it was actually touching the projector and eddy currents and striae became visible in the mass about them as their progress grew slower and slower. "'What's the matter?' Something gone screwy? demanded Seaton. Not at all. Everything is working perfectly. The substance is now so dense it is becoming opaque to rays of the fourth order, so that we are now partially displacing the medium instead of moving through it without friction. At the point where we can barely see to work, that is, when the fourth order rays will be so retarded that they can no longer carry the heterodyne light waves without complete distortion. There we shall stop automatically, as the material at that depth will have the required density to refract the fifth order rays to the correct degree. How can our foundation stand it? Asked Seaton. the stuff must be a hundred times as dense as platinum already, and we must be pushing a horrible load in going through it. We are exerting no force whatever upon our foundations, nor upon nor The force is transmitted without loss from the power plant in our laboratory to the secondary projector here inside the star, where it is liberated in the correct band to pull us through the mass, using all the mass ahead of us as anchorage. When we wish to return, we shall simply change the pull to a push. Ha, there, we are now at a standstill. Now comes the most important moment of the entire project. All apparent motion had ceased, and Seaton could see only dimly the outlines of the Phaeton, now directly before his eyes. The structure of force slowly warped around until its front portion held the Phaeton as in a vice. Roval pressed a lever, and behind them in the laboratory, four enormous plunger switches drove home. A plane of pure energy, flaming radiantly even in the indescribable incandescence of the core of that seating star, bisected the fate neatly and ten gigantic beams five upon each half of the jewel rapidly molded two sections of a geometrically perfect hollow lens the two sections were then brought together by the closing of the jaws of the mighty vice their edges in exact alignment instantly the plane of the beams of energy became transformed into two terrific opposing tubes of force Vibrant, glowing tubes whose edges in contact coincided with the almost invisible seam between the two halves of the lenses. Like a welding arc raised to the nth power, these two immeasurable and irresistible forces met in exact opposition, a meeting of such indescribable violence that seismic disturbances occurred throughout the entire mass of that dense violet white star. Sunspots of unprecedented size appeared prominences erupted to hundreds of times in normal distances, and although the two scientists deep in the core of the tormented star were unaware of what was happening upon its surface, convulsion after titanic convulsion racked the mighty globe, and enormous masses of molten and gaseous material were riven from it and hurled far into space, masses which would in time become planets of that youthful and turbulent luminary. Seaton felt his air supply grow hot. Suddenly it became icy cold, and knowing that Roval had energized the refrigeration system, Seaton turned away from the fascinating welding operation for a quick look around the laboratory. As he did that, he realized Roval's vast knowledge, and he understood the reason for the new system of relief points and ground rods, as well as the necessity for the all-embracing scheme of refrigeration. Even through the practically opaque goggles, he could see that the laboratory was one mass of genuine lightning, not only from the relief points, but from every metallic corner. In protuberance, the pent-up losses from the disintegrating bar were hurling themselves upon the flaring, blue-white, rapidly volatilizing ground rods, and the very air of the room, renewed second by second, though it was by the powerful blowers, was beginning to take on the pearly luster of a highly ionized corona. But the calculations of the aged physicist had been accurate. The lens was completed with some hundreds of pounds of copper to spare, and that geometrical form, with its precious content of semi-neutronium, was following the secondary projector back toward the green system. Roval left his seat and discarded his armor, and signaled Seaton to do the same. I gotta hand it to you, Ace. You sure are a blinding flash and a deafening report, Satan exclaimed, writhing out of his insulating suit. I feel as though I've been pulled halfway through a knot hole and riveted over at both ends. How big a lens did you make, anyway? Looked as though it would hold a couple of liters, maybe three. Its contents are almost exactly three liters. Wow. Seven and a half million kilograms. Say, 8,000 tons. Some mass, I'd say, to put into a gallon jug. Of course, being inside the Phaeton, it wouldn't have any weight, but it'll have all its full quota of inertia. That's why you're taking so long to bring it back in, isn't it? Yes, the projector will now bring it here into the laboratory without any further attention from us. The period of labor is about to end and tomorrow we shall find the lens awaiting us when we arrive to begin work. What about cooling it off? It had a temperature of something like 40 million degrees centigrade before you started working on it, and when you got done with it, it was hot. You're forgetting again, son. Remember, the hot, dense material is entirely enclosed in an envelope impervious to all vibrations longer than those of the fifth order. You could put your hand upon it now without receiving any sensation of either heat or cold. Oh yeah, that's right. I noticed I could take a fade right out of an electric arc and it wouldn't even be warm. I couldn't explain at the time why that was, but I see that now. So that stuff inside that lens will always stay as hot as it is now? Zowie, here's hoping she never explodes. Well, there's the bell for once in my life I'm all ready to quit when the whistle blows. And arm-in-arm, arm, the young terrestrial chemist and the aged Norlaminian physicist strolled out to their waiting airboat.